for the last few weeks, we've been in Acts and we've seen how the church went outside of Jerusalem and, and brought the gospel to Samaria. Last week, we saw that Philip went to meet an Ethiopian eunuch on the, the road that leads to Gaza, that's south of Jerusalem. And we saw how the Ethiopian lived two different lives. There was one where he was an important Ethiopian official, a treasurer of the queen, while he lived in Ethiopia, but he was an outcast among his own people. But when Philip shared the gospel with him, with the eunuch, the eunuch believed the gospel, and the promises of Isaiah 56 came true for him. He was now part of this new family of God that God was creating, and he was no longer an outcast. God's grace to an outcast is, is beautiful to read about. But we are about to see God's, that God's grace will go places that men and women would never dare to go. We are about to see depths of mercy, depths of forgiveness, depths of patience, depths of love that cannot be observed anywhere else. What words could you even use to describe this kind of mercy and this kind of love that God gives even to some of the greatest of his enemies? The title of my sermon is simply Amazing Grace, How We Overcome Our Enemies Through Love. In our text, Luke picks up the narrative of Saul I'm going to describe Saul a little bit, give a little bit of information about him. He was born in a place called Tarsus, and that was the capital of the, the providence of Sicilia, which is northwest of Israel. And tradition has it that Saul and his parents left the region of Judea around 5 AD. And what was happening in 5 AD? Well, around that time, there were a lot of Jewish revolts happening and against the Roman Empire, and these uprisings caused many Jews to scatter and have to leave Israel altogether. So Paul, essentially what, he was a Jew, but he was born and partly raised outside of Israel. And Saul was highly educated. Uh, many scholars, because of the fluent way he express, expresses himself in Greek, they believe that he was most likely partly educated in Tarsus. But we know from Acts that the education didn't stop there. Saul studied under Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was one of the most prestigious teachers of the law. Now this would have been, we've already talked about Gamaliel a few times uh, as we've gone through Acts, but learning from Gamaliel would have been similar to going to an Ivy League school and studying under one of the greatest doctors there. And whenever Saul has been mentioned so far in Acts, he's been persecuting the church. In chapter 7, he watched people's coats as they went and stoned Stephen. And surely he sits by, looking, watching, satisfied by all the evil taking place. In chapter 8, it says Saul ravaged the church, which led the Christians to leave Jerusalem out and spread out to the other parts of the southern kingdom and then into Samaria. And in our text, Saul has a desire 
to go to Damascus and bring Christians back to Jerusalem in chains. Look at the second half of verse 2. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Luke sort of assumes this, but have you ever wondered why Paul is so against this movement? Have you ever wondered why he wants to persecute the Christian church so much? Why he wants to eradicate the Christian movement? So Saul was a Pharisee. He was a a teacher of the law. But he also had the mindset of a a zealot, someone who had committed themselves to the purity of Israel, and they would, would fight for the purity of Israel no matter what it took. And here's what I mean. And if you can follow along with me, you can really start to understand how Saul or later Paul used to think, and you can, it'll help you understand his letters better. It'll help you understand parts of the New Testament better, the Old Testament even. So during Saul's time, at the time that he lived, Jews believed that they were under what are called the covenant, the covenant curses. What does that mean? What are covenant curses? Well, the book of Deuteronomy stated clearly to the Jewish people that if they failed to obey the law of Moses, God would bring curses upon Israel. Covenant curses. And when you look at Deuteronomy 28, we can see many curses that would fall upon them. But there was one great and ultimate curse, the worst curse. That's the curse of exile. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, verses 36 and 37. The Lord will bring, this is if they fail to obey the covenant. The Lord will bring you and your king to a nation neither you nor your ancestors have known. And there you will worship other gods of wood and stone. You will become an object of horror, scorn, and ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. And the Old Testament ends with Israel failing to obey the covenant. And so what happens? the covenant curse of exile. They go into Babylon and Assyria. And this sort of mirrors Adam and Eve, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve failed to obey God, what was their curse? They were kicked out of the garden and out of the presence of God. And so Israel, which is another type of Adam, follows the same pattern as Adam and Eve did. And we have to say that, yes, at the very end of the Old Testament, eventually the Persian king comes and defeats the the Babylonians, and Israel is able to go back to their land. But when they go back, they're still ruled over by Persians, by Greeks, and then eventually in our text, the time of our text, the Romans. And so Israel, and we could look at Second Temple Judaism text, we can look at the Old Testament But they believed that because they were still being ruled over by another people, they saw themselves as exiles within their own land. And many of the prophets that spoke about the exile of Israel would also speak about the blessings that would happen when they returned from exile. There would be a promise that there was going to be a jubilee of all jubilees. There's promises of restoration of the kingdom of Israel, promises of the Messiah. But the Jews in Saul's day didn't see any of these blessings that were coming true when they read the Old Testament. There's no kingdom, there's no Messiah. And so what's the solution? 
What do the Jews have to do to finally bring God's post-exilic blessings? Now, for the Pharisees, to bring in the Messiah, that meant Israel had to be pure and holy. And so that meant strict obedience to the law. If Israel follows the law as well as all the other uh, extra rules that they came up with and traditions, that meant God would finally send the Messiah, rescue Israel, and all the post-exilic blessings would come. And because different movements would lead Israel astray and compromise Israel's holiness and purity, that meant it would stall God's blessings. And so Pharisees, like Saul, believed that they had to eradicate, destroy these movements. And they would do it by any means necessary. In Philippians 3, Saul, Paul at this time, described himself as a Pharisee in regard to the law. And listen to his connection between zeal and persecution. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. So to summarize essentially where we've been and and what I've said so far, in order to end exile and bring God's blessing, Saul believed that he had to be violent and eradicate the different movements arising within Israel. And in our text, he wants to go to Damascus and he wants to find and arrest any and every Christian that he can and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth, Jesus says, and it appears from verse 1 that Saul was, because Saul was breathing threats and murder, he wanted them dead. He wanted them dead. He wanted to see, witness, and possibly even take part in the killing of Christians, just as what happened with Stephen earlier in chapter 7. That was Saul's mission. Now here's another question. When we look at verse 2, I believe, Luke describes the Christian movement as the way. And he does this throughout Acts. You'll see this again. He calls it the way. Why is it called the way? Many commentators believe that he's picking up uh, a theme uh, in Isaiah. Let me read Isaiah 40, verse 3 to you, to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. We've talked about in places like Ezekiel and here in Isaiah in the book of Kings that Yahweh would leave Israel during the exile, that he leaves the, the, the nation. And what Isaiah is doing in this text I just read is that he is promising Yahweh's return to come back and to restore Israel. And he's saying in prophetic, uh, poetic language, raise up the valleys, bring down the mountains. We don't want God to have to, to go over a mountain or go down a low valley, just make them a straight path. As one author would say, as one author did say, essentially what Isaiah is saying is roll out the red carpet, Yahweh's coming back to Israel. In the world, as Isaiah says, all people will see 
the glory of the Lord. And so Christians, they believed that there was initial fulfillment to Isaiah's promise. It already came true that Yahweh did return to restore Israel and the world as Jesus. And so they took the phrase, the way, found in different places in Isaiah and applied it to the Christian movement. Why did Saul target Damascus? Why did he want to go to Damascus? That's, that's not entirely clear. Scholars are all over the place on assumptions on why he went there. But Damascus was located in Syria. It's north of Israel, and it has a long history in the Bible, going back even before Abraham. And Damascus had a very, Jewish, a very large Jewish population, and perhaps Saul saw that as a key location for presenting, uh, preventing the spread of the way. And so Saul wants to go to Damascus, arrest, persecute Christians, bring them back, but he doesn't have the authority to do that himself. And so he has to go, if you look at the middle of verse 1 going into verse 2, the text says that he goes to the high priest. And he asks the high priest if he will write him a letter that Saul can carry with him and give to the authorities either at the synagogue or the governing authorities in Damascus. The reason the Roman Empire was so successful is because it allowed nations a, a, a sort of a level of autonomy. The Romans would allow the nations to sort of govern themselves, and this delegation of authority kept nations somewhat happy. It was less work for the Romans. It minimized uprisings due to the fact that the gov their government was allowed for the nations to maintain their laws and their identity. And the Romans gave the nations the authority to extradite people. And for Israel, this authority was given to the high priest. I have a letter uh, from a Roman ambassador to a king in Egypt named Ptolemy VIII. And listen to what the Roman ambassador tells Ptolemy. He says, if any pestilent men have fled to you from their own country, and here he's talking about Judea, he says, hand them over to Simon the priest, so that he may punish them according to their law. And so because the high priest had the authority to have Christians extradited from Syria, Saul, he procures a letter from the high priest so that he can take to Damascus to have Christians arrested. He has an official letter now that has authority behind it so that he can have Christians taken away. So to summarize where we've been so far, because Saul believed so strongly that Israel must obey the law and that he must eradicate the Christian movement in order to bring God's blessings, he heads off to Syria, Damascus, to persecute the church. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have believed something so strongly, been so convinced, that you found out later you were so wrong. Saul's about to have that experience. So Saul is about to meet the resurrected Lord. And he almost made it 
all the way to Damascus. The end of verse 3 says what happened as he gets almost all the way to Damascus is suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. God uh, is often described as uh, being surrounded by light in his glory. Ezekiel 43 says, And behold, the glory of the, of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and the earth shone with his glory. Isaiah 60 claims that when heaven and earth become one, we will no longer need the sun to give us light or the moon to reflect it. Why? Isaiah says, because the Lord will be our everlasting light. And this light that shined from heaven in our text was so bright, so intense that it blinded Saul for three days. If you look at verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and he neither ate or drank. In one sense, Saul knew who he was encountering. He asked the question in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And F.F. Bruce agrees here that the translation of Lord here is better than something like sir because Saul is discerning that there is a divine quality about the voice and about the light that he's seeing and hearing. But in another sense, Saul didn't know exactly who he was talking to. He didn't know exactly who the Lord was, otherwise why the question? And of course, this light was Jesus himself. So Jesus responds to him in verse 5. And he said, I am Jesus. And you got to believe that when Saul heard those words that I am Jesus, as he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Jesus, that his world must have been flipped upside down. Because the one that he was convinced was a false Messiah was now right in front of him, speaking to him in a blinding, glorious light. And Saul would have undoubtedly known that he had never been more wrong about something in his entire life. Saul knew the scriptures very well. He would have definitely been familiar with places like Ezekiel 1, where this, there's this glorious one that's described for almost an entire chapter. And when they finally get to the throne, they see the one sitting on the throne and all the Jews are puzzled because the one that's sitting on the throne is a human being. Or Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees a vision of the one on the throne and he's so amazingly, blindingly glorious that the, the seraphim around the throne, they have to cover their faces just to worship him. And now we have Saul here and he looks into this blinding light and he's hearing the voice of the one he's read about all along in, in Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah from a time ever since he was a young boy in Tarsus. All of those Old Testament texts that Saul read, cherished, meditated on, they were all about Jesus. And a man as brilliant as that knows so much scripture, that had to rock his world. Because everything, all these scriptures are currently running through his head and are now being reframed and recentered around the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus himself intervenes here. 
ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, he has been in the background in Acts. He's, he uh, made an appearance in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen, but for the most part, he's been in the background. And throughout Acts, we've seen that when the church is persecuted, Luke focuses on how the church handled that, how God raised up a man to, help, uh, to handle that situation. But here in our narrative, when the persecution is most intense, it is Jesus himself who steps on the scene and intervenes. Everyone with Saul is shocked. Look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. So the people with Saul would have had a similar mindset to Saul, most likely Pharisees, some temple police maybe. And they all had the mindset that Jesus was a false Messiah, but now they are all just as shocked as Saul is. Can't even say a word. And they have a problem, a big problem, don't they? Because they have been persecuting Jesus. And Jesus says this himself, the end of verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul and, and these men, they've, have, uh, they've been resting, beating, and even killing Jesus' people. And Jesus identifies this persecution as if it's happening to himself. And isn't that comforting to know that when something negative happens to Jesus' church, Jesus takes it personal. And so, what do you think the Messiah should do to those who have been killing his followers? At least one emotion that would have been running through all these, these Pharisees and these temple police would have been fear. They would have been experiencing fear. Fear that they're going to be destroyed. But these Pharisees never met a man like Jesus before. When someone disagreed with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they mocked them, they beat them, they killed them like they did Stephen. But Jesus was different. He told his people on the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he lived out that command on the cross as he prayed for the Father to forgive the very ones who are crucifying him. Jesus was and is merciful. And he gave Saul grace. He showed him mercy. He saves him. He doesn't kill Saul as Saul deserves to be killed. He doesn't destroy him. Instead, he renews him. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see the amazing transformation that happened in Saul, but you can see it just on his journey in the fact that he was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians, but after meeting Jesus, we're about to see he's going to be heading back to Jerusalem to preach about Jesus. What amazing grace is that? That Jesus would come, speak to, and save even the greatest 
of his enemies. The grace and salvation that Saul received didn't come with the immediate joy like it did with the eunuch in the last narrative. Salvation, it often comes first with a, with a calm, peaceful, and quiet reflection. Verse 9 tells us that Saul went blind for three days and he didn't eat or drink. And during those three days, Saul must have had a lot to think about as his entire world has been turned upside down and that his newly discovered reality about Jesus is beginning to sink in. I had an experience where for about a day or two after asking Jesus to save me, where I simply sat in my room and had this strange period of contemplation where I once, at once felt sober, solemn, but also had a, a bit of joy throughout the process. And during that day or two, I came to the realization that for the first time in my life, I was done with sin. And I sat around and I thought about what it was going to cost me to follow Jesus. And it did cost me friends. It cost me my coveted position at, at work because I had a position a lot of people wanted to have, but because I would now not speak like them, get in the conversations that they had, I would talk about Jesus. They, they moved me somewhere else. But I knew that I had gained something, something much greater. And a lot of that must be going through Saul mind, Saul's mind as well. Following Jesus would have been costly for Saul. And, he, and Jesus says this in verse 16, if you skip down to there, that he's going to know what it's like to suffer for his name. And the irony in this story is that Paul wanted to bind Christians in chains, but he was the one that was actually bound. And before his encounter with Jesus, he could see out of his eyes, but he was blind as to who Jesus was. But after his encounter with Jesus, he became physically blind. But oh, could he ever see for the first time. It's probably where the line in Amazing Grace comes from. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I know that that has a, a history with a slave ship owner, and, but I wonder where he got the words from. I'd like to look into that more. A couple takeaways. We can see that God's grace is great enough and powerful enough to overcome even the hearts of even his most strident and ardent and zealous enemies. We can see that God's grace is great enough and powerful enough to overcome even the hearts of his most strident, ardent, and zealous enemies. I heard a story recently. There was a man named Muhammad, and he was in ISIS. And he wasn't just a regular member of ISIS. He was a prince of ISIS. A prince of ISIS is a position of leadership within the group of ISIS, and the Muslims in ISIS, the, the regular members of ISIS, they would pledge their allegiance to a prince of ISIS that they would commit themselves as ones who were willing to die at his command. And as he held this high position within ISIS, within ISIS 
he was struggling on the inside. He began to have doubts about Islam. And he had a tiny little bit of curiosity about Christianity. And because of that, he called a Christian organization nearby and asked if somebody would meet with him. And when this Christian organization received the call, they were both suspicious and afraid because they knew that he was in ISIS. But one Christian evangelist said he had an overwhelming sense of of peace about meeting with Muhammad, and so he decided to go. Now at the meeting, the Christian starts boldly proclaiming that God is the true God, their God is the true God, and it incited and it sparked within Muhammad his zeal for Islam that started to come back up and arise within him. And Muhammad said that as he's sitting there listening to this Christian, in his mind he was thinking about, what's the best way I can kill this man? But by God's grace, instead of killing him, Muhammad gets up and he just leaves. A little later, Muhammad came and he decided to meet with the Christian again and he confessed that as he left that first meeting, he was shaken to the core and guilt-ridden. And it's at this point, Muhammad is ripe for the gospel. And so the Christian said to him, his own words, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he said, Jesus will forgive you right now. No strings attached, no having to earn it. It's completely free. And so Muhammad, by his own admission, broke down, cried, and right then, right there, prayed for forgiveness and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was baptized, and he said in his own words that he found love in Christianity that he claimed didn't exist in Islam. Today, he he lives in Syria, and he leads Bible studies with other Syrians. How amazing is our God? What depths of love, what depths of mercy and grace that he has even for his own enemies? Just as God saved someone that was such an enemy of Christianity as Saul was, we must know that wasn't a one-time deal. And God still saves his enemies today. There's no one that's too far gone. There's no heart that's too hard for the grace of God to overcome. Think about that friend you have that's very outspoken against Christianity. Don't consider them a lost cause. Pray for them. Speak to them. You never know what God might do. And the second sort of application we can take away, it's related to the first point, is we must know that we also should extend grace and forgiveness to even our greatest enemies. There was a sentencing happening with a man who had killed a lot of people, a lot of women. And you can find this on on, uh, YouTube and videos online. And there was a time 
during the sentencing where they allowed the victim's families to come up to the mic and speak to the man who brutally murdered their daughters, their wives, and their mothers. And everyone you hear, they keep coming up to the mic and they start loudly yelling at the man and telling him about how much they hate him. One woman comes up and says, I hope you burn in hell. And you hear these sort of things over and over again with all the victims' families. And the whole time, the killer just looks back at him with this stone face like, I don't care. But then this Christian man comes up to the mic. And I believe he said it was his daughter that had been murdered. And he looked at the killer and said, there are a lot of people here this morning who hate you. But I'm not one of them. He said, my Lord Jesus has given me a very difficult command to follow because you have taken away someone so precious to me. But I forgive you. And you can see the killer's face there as he just bursts into tears. We have to love, remove bitterness, and extend forgiveness even to the people who hate us or have greatly sinned against us. God forbid that we ever are in a position like that to, where we have to forgive a man like that in that courtroom. Though I'm not denying that justice should be done. He should be in prison. He should, be, he should have the death penalty. But we do have to imitate God and extend forgiveness to our enemies. We're not supposed to dig our hills in and hate each other. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to show the amazing grace that God showed Saul and overcome our enemies through loving them. If you're here today or listening in but you're not a Christian, know that God will forgive you too. Because of the work of his son, Jesus on the cross, to take his people's punishment on himself, God can forgive you completely if you'll repent and believe the gospel. Though you are blind, you will be able to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, another opportunity to, to preach. Thank you for another opportunity to, to really explore the depths of your mercy and your grace and just to see how wonderful and how rich your word is. Father, I pray that we would, this week, you would show us the enemies in our own lives, the people who, who speak about us, talk about us, and help us to not respond in the way we'd like to. Help us to respond in the way that Jesus would, in the way that you would. Help us extend grace. Help us extend forgiveness. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.